podcast about disasters and the music they make us listen to. I'm Peter, and I'm here with my co-host, Lee. Hello. And today, we've got our first ever two-part episode Whoa. about a topic that's near and dear to my heart, uh, but we'll get into that. First, a little bit of housekeeping. A lot of new listeners, so welcome, everyone. Welcome and thank you. This is a, something that I say every time now, but there's no continuity per se, but we do reference previous episodes a lot. So if you want to kind of be in the know, mm. I recommend going back and checking them out. It's more fun to know. Yeah. Not to make it all the information. Not to make it sound like there's no inside jokes. We don't do that, but there's a lot of references to things that we've talked before. Yeah. So might it, be worth a listen. It's not an arrested development where there's inside jokes about inside jokes. Yeah, we're not seeding jokes not that'll that pay deep. off. Sometimes <laughs> never. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that's a different disaster. Right. Yeah. People ask when they come in, the best way to help us, subscribing helps a lot. Mm-hmm. Reviews on iTunes or Apple Podcasts help a lot and telling anyone that'll listen about how great we are if you think so is also helpful. Yeah, it's weird for us because people actually like podcasts and listen to them. Yeah. We play in bands and I, I think years ago I stopped telling people about my bands. Right, yeah. pointless, but yeah, tell people true. about a podcast, they might check it out. Yeah, right? exactly. I'm not used to that. <laughs> Those conversations always hurt a little bit. Yeah. Like, oh, you're in a band? It doesn't matter. Yeah, don't worry about don't, it. Don't worry about it. What my kind rotten. of music? N- you No. <laughs> <laughs> Not the kind you like. Don't ask me that. (laughs) He took a piece of my soul. (laughs) Uh, Merch. So we're still sending out personalized disaster postcards and stickers. So if you send us uh, your mailing address and birthday, then we'll send you a postcard about a disaster that takes place on your special day. How do you like that? So that you don't ever get too happy about the way things are. Yeah. It's my birthday. (laughs) You know what else happened? (laughs) A tragic fire. Where do you get off feeling good about yourself? (laughs) You came to the wrong place. Yeah. Uh, live show. So this weekend, we're playing the Ottawa Podcast Festival right. in Ottawa. Yeah. Hence Ottawa Podcast Festival. <laughs> it's at Live on Elgin. We're on at 3.30. There's lots of great podcasts, though, so I recommend going to check the whole thing out. And just for fans of the podcast, we have a discount code. So if you go to www.ottawapodcastfestival.com and use the discount code, probably case sensitive, all capitals, PODFAN, P-O-D-F-A-N, 2019, you get a discount on the tickets. Boom. So go check that out. So today's disaster. Yeah. Uh, if you don't know, if you're new here, a lot of the disasters that we cover are inspired by this Reader's Digest book called Great Disasters. It was published in uh, 1989. It kind of, kind of gives a brief overview of disasters. We'll draw inspiration from that, do our own research, and then tell you about those. Today we're going off book. Not only that, I'm going to call this, uh, in my notes here, I've got quote-unquote tentpole episode. Because <laughs> every now and then, I come across a topic that kind of reminds me why I got interested in disasters in the first place. Okay. And this is one of those. So, I was just listening to the MTV Unplugged Nirvana album, and okay. at one point he introduces a track, and he's like, we're going to try something here, and if it doesn't work out... These people are just going to have to wait. Right, right, right. So right. we'll see how this goes. <laughs> yeah. But I think I think it's a super interesting story. You're, you're going to have to wait. Hits a lot of points uh, that reminded me why I'm so interested in disasters. Okay. So in terms of sources, uh, the main one is a book called The Strange Last Voyage of Donald Crowhurst hmm. by Nicholas Tomlin and Ron Hall. And there's also a great documentary about this called Deep Water. It's on YouTube. So okay. you can check that out probably after the fact. Yeah. So... I'm going to start with Donald Crowhurst, the early years. Okay. Here so he go. was, he part was born. one. Yeah. Part one. Part <laughs> one. Scene. Is that how things are said? Scene. I don't know. You just came back from LA. You know about the lingo. They make movies there. They do. And they're, and they're, that's where the, that's where the, the Hollywood magic is. Right. With, with scenes. I thought with scenes and movies. Donald Crowhurst, the early <laughs> years. So he was born in 1932 in Ghaziabad which was then in British India. Okay. We also do a lot of sidebars on this episode. So whenever I come across something that I think is interesting or might provide historical context, I do a nice little sidebar about it. No big ones, but there's mini ones here. So mini sidebar on British India. Okay. Because that's something that I'd always known about, but I never really knew the details. Sure, sure. So uh, the East India Company might ring a bell. Yep. So it was formed to conduct trade in the region of the Indian Ocean. In 1608, mm-hmm. India allowed the English East India Company to set up a small trading settlement, uh, but in for a penny and for a pound. Mm. So over the next 200 years, the East India Company occupied more and more space in India and built up a considerable military presence. Okay. Why would a trading company have a military, you might ask? Shh. 
to fight off their Dutch and French competitors in the region. <laughs> and then, once you have a military, it also provides useful tool for expansion and conquest. Cut so throat. by the 1820s, the East India Company had annexed or subdued most of India. And now, instead of a trading partner, India was just a s supplying England. So basically, okay. it goes from like selling England things to just supplying things to England, yeah. which is very nice. It's ours now. And that was basically the beginning of the colonial period, mm. which would last for a while. Right. So par Crowhurst's parents lived in British India during this colonial period. Okay. Uh, and it would eventually end on August 15th, 1947. Ah. So anniversary sort of. just passed. Yeah, true. Uh, so his mother was a school teacher. His father worked in the Indian railways. Okay. Crowhurst's family moved back to England shortly after India gained its independence. Okay. So they invested most of their retirement savings in a sporting goods factory in India, but it burned down during rioting associated with the partition of India that came after its independence. Mm -hmm. So as it gained independence, it was divided into India and Pakistan, and not everyone loved the idea. Right, so right, riots. right. Change a lot of background difficult. Here. A lot of background here, but I'm building up Crowhurst the man, because okay. it's going to be important. Okay. So when the factory burned down, Crowhurst was already at university at this point. Okay. Uh, and things were made worse by his father's death in 1948. So with his family thrown into financial crisis, financial crisis, keep that in mind. Okay. He could no longer afford to continue his university education. Mm. So money cut that short. And money's going to end up being a uh, running theme in this episode. It does make the world go around. It sure does. It sure does. Or it makes you, you'll get this joke later. <laughs> At this point, Crowhurst was 16. And one of his core beliefs was that by 16, a child will demonstrate what they will become. So already putting a lot of pressure on himself. Oh, yeah. Back then you were a man grown. Yeah, essentially. 16. Yeah. So he took and passed his exams at London University. He was, he was excellent in arts subject, and he was all right in sciences. Okay. So any plans to go further along in university uh, were basically quashed by his family's new financial position. Mm -hmm. So he, was, he had promise, but it was all cut short. Right. So he turned to the Air Force. Okay. So he became an apprentice electrical engineer at the Royal Aircraft Establishment Technical College. Very and good. he eventually joined the RAF. So he passed his technical exams, learned to fly, and became a commissioned officer. As a recruit in the RAF, he wrote an essay titled, The Necessity of Faith. Mm. Why do I live? And what am I when I live no more? Was kind of the central tenet. Wow. And he also talked about how one should have faith in the insignificance of faith. And those are things that are going to come up again. Okay. Later. So he's related to God or religion? Basically, okay. God and religion, because he basically had a religious upbringing. And already at this relatively early age, he's kind of calling that into question, mm -hmm. which we'll see comes around. Okay. A lot of, a lot of strings being set. You know that thing we said about how we're not, we don't set up in jokes and future things. Mm. I realized that I'm setting up a lot of threads that are going to pay off in a minute. Within the episode. Yeah, within the we episode. We do that. Yeah, we do that. <laughs> <laughs> so he loved being a young officer. Okay. Because he had money. He raced around in a Lagonda, which I learned is a British luxury, luxury car. Okay. They were bought by Austin, uh, Aston Martin in 1947. Right, right. He was described by his peers as the wildest and bravest in any group. He was a compulsive risk taker, defied authority, and the life of a party. Wow. Defying authority. That, that's going to work a real, real bounder. well. Yeah, well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to the point where he smashed his Lagonda into a trolley bus in Reading. Oh, boy. And he frequently drove it without insurance and had his license confiscated on several occasions. Jeez. But he kept driving without his license. What a, what, a, so, what a ruffian. A little bit of a rift, yeah. Uh, yeah, ruffian and a risk taker. Yeah. So I actually have a little story here just to illustrate it further. He once, quote unquote, borrowed a car uh -huh. and was stopped by a police officer while he was leaning over the hood to connect the ignition wires. <laughs> the constable goes, excuse me, sir, is this your car? And Crowher says, yes, of course. <laughs> the constable said, would you mind telling me the license plate number? At which point, Crowher's bolted and dove into the Reading Canal. <laughs> <laughs> He decisions. was arrested on the other side of the canal, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to go over there and meet you over there with yeah. some handcuffs. You just picture him, like, splashing through the canal <laughs> and the officer just, like, strolling over the bridge, probably right next to it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and I'm dry, too. I knew mm -hmm. this all night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if pressed, I could tell you my license plate number. That's fair. I, I could probably come up with it now. And yeah. the, uh, well, I won't. <laughs> no, no, that's, yeah, yeah. But, uh, hey, what's yeah. your social insurance number? Real quick. If I, I know it. <laughs> I want to give it out, but. No, no, no. I'm the same. Whenever I have to, like, get it one of those parking machines and punch in my license plate, yeah. I like, always okay. check. When's I'm sure I know it until someone asks exactly. me. Exactly. Then the pressure's on. It's like, oh, when's my birthday? What the? Yeah. Although I guess 
There are probably some other indicators, like the fact that he was leaning over a hood trying to connect ignition wires. That so. too. It's a little shady. Good constable work. <laughs> so Crowhurst had his commission to the RAF terminated on August 3rd, 1954. Oh. In the book that I read, it says the reasons were unclear, but were they? <laughs> I think they're coming I feel pretty like clear. It's, if you got a loose cannon who has problems with authority... That doesn't usually work too Not well. really. Yeah, so he's the, clearly uh, not a good fit for the military structure. of a military man. Exactly. He's got <clears> like <throat> that don't tell me what to do attitude. Yeah, great which, trait for a soldier. Yeah, yeah I'll, <laughs> I'll take it real far. Yeah. So Donald met his future wife, Claire, at a party in early 1957. Okay. It was, was kind of smooth because he came up to her and he basically read her fortune. And he says, you're going to marry an impossible man. And he told her that he's never going to leave her side. <laughs> Both of those things are going to come up again. <laughs> Later, speaking about Crowhurst, Claire said, Donald had this definite talent. He would say the most amazing things, but then no matter how crazy they seemed, he would be clever and ingenious enough to make them come true. Hmm. This is the most important point about his character, she said. Okay. So Donald and Claire Crowhurst were married in October 1957, and around this time, Crowhurst began his most serious hobby, sailing. Okay. So Crowhurst got an exciting job with an electronics company. If you remember, he did his education in electronics for the RAF. Right. So he hoped to flex his engineering and intellect and tackle new challenges, but he ended up being a traveling salesman instead. Hmm. So huge letdown. He hated the routine. He hated the company politics and he hated the constant traveling. Right. So great. You can, we've all been there where you're like, you think you're expecting one thing and then you get handed a shit sandwich yep. and you're like oh bitter isn't my life now yeah yeah great. yeah great and that sounds gonna be forever so one year into the job he was in another car crash okay the guy doesn't know how to drive a car mm. or he's just reckless yeah he didn't take the reprimand from his boss very well because i guess it was a company car okay. and he basically told them where you can where they can stick their job and mm. left impulsive yeah don't tell me what to do attitude comes up again right here. Okay. So that's going to be another thing to keep in mind. So now 26, Crowhurst had decided that he would never be a good quote unquote company man. Mm. Didn't do well with authority and he decided that he needed to start his own electronics business. Okay. Crowhurst, the businessman. <laughs> so Crowhurst married his uh, love of tinkering and his growing interest in sailing. So he was convinced that his road to riches was paved with his inventiveness. Right. And he comes up with something called the Navigator. Navi Not navigator. It's oh. a C where you where you expect the G, navigator, navigator. There was already a word navigator, I'm assuming? Probably. Okay. He's just trying to be clever. It's the, yeah, okay. It's marketing. Huh. Yeah, sure, marketing, sure, sure. Man. Oh, yeah. Like fruit loops with the O's. Um, <laughs> wait, no, that that's just how you spell loops. But fruit. Oh, uh, <laughs> really? Do they spell it fruit? Yeah. Son of a... I've never... I've always read that box assuming... Damn. And then there's people who tell you that they spell it that way because there's no real fruit in there. Oh. People like to say stupid things. Like, okay. Fair you know. enough. <laughs> it's fruit adjacent. Yeah. It's good enough. It's good enough. Cereal's a vegetable. <laughs> <laughs> for me, it is. So the Navigator, it was a radio-based navigation tool for yachting. It was like pistol-shaped with a compass on top so it can be used single-handed. And it was well-designed, but it wasn't an original idea. Okay. So he founded a company which he called Electron Utilization. And now we have the second half of the name of this podcast. Ah. Around this together. time, the Crowhursts had four children. James, Simon, Roger, and Rachel. Crowhurst got involved with a local theater company, and he'd frequently stay behind after practices late into the night, having deep philosophical discussions with other people involved. Mm. And during one of these, the only reason I bring it up, is that during one of these, he outlines several of his theories. For example, life as a game, mm -hmm. the truth as being something that could be computed, because he was obsessed with this idea of the ultimate supremacy of logic and how everything has to compute. Yeah. And most importantly, the mind existing without the confines of the body. I don't like where this is going. Really? Okay. <laughs> Good. Then I'm instilling a sense of dread that's yes, appropriate. Yeah. Donald Crowhurst had an untamed intelligence. He was brilliant at coming up with electronic innovations, and he was a decent writer. Mm. But he would frequently make spelling mistakes in his writing or tackle complex mathematical problems in creative and effective ways only to make basic addition mistakes. Ah. Uh. Which yeah, is super details, frustrating. Details. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. That's that's the attitude. It's just, right? you know, the fundamentals of whatever you're working exactly. on are I'm off, screwed up. Yeah. <laughs> I'm off by one. One. Zero. Yeah. Which is significant. Which is going to be a compounding 
problem. Yeah, totally. So he, like, had things gone differently. If you remember, he got, his education got cut off by the death of his father and the factory burning down and basically the family having no money. Uh-huh. So if they had gone differently and he continued his, univers- his university education, things might have turned out very differently. Right. Likely better. Might have had a more even keel approach exactly. to life. Exactly. Because he did, he was very good at coming up with these innovations and inventions. So mm-hmm. if he had had the right backing and the right education, he might have actually realized some of them. Right. Or just the right attitude. I mean, like, now he's of the opinion that the any point the rug can get pulled out. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, exactly for sure. So. And that actually segues well into this next point because <clears throat> so he, his failures would plunge him into a deep depression. Mm. And often the only way he pulled himself out of them would be to tackle new problems with manic energy. Right. So basically if he was failing at one thing, he would just throw himself fully into something else and sure. just ignore the past failures, even though they might be compounding. Mm-hmm. I can dig it. One of these manic manic episodes, escaping from some failure, maybe why he ran for office and was elected to city council. Oh, nice. So he's charismatic. If you remember all of his friends saying that he was like the life of the party, right. he can he can motivate people. He's a charmer. Exactly. But it's another example of sort of his unfocused intelligence. Yeah. Like, are you running for office? Are you running a business? Yeah. I know those aren't mutually exclusive, but the business isn't going yet. So, right. you know. He's not a seer thrower. Exactly. And on top of all this, around this time, Crowher buys himself a Jaguar. And oh. six months later, crashes. <laughs> so he's impulsive and he doesn't learn from his mistakes. No. And he's also demonstrating that he's overconfident in his abilities. Right. Overconfident so, and poor judgment. Exactly. Exactly. Good combination. So electron utilization had an air of success because he's charismatic and he can sort of, right. you know, give off an air of like, this is, I'm doing exactly what I want to do. This is perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In reality, the Navigator wasn't moving units nearly as well as Crowhurst had hoped. Mm-hmm. As good an engineer as Crowhurst was, that's how bad he was as a businessman. Oh, okay. So he went searching for financial support to stay afloat, and Crowhurst crossed paths with a man named Stanley Best. Mm. So he made his fortune in uh, selling petrol and caravans. Caravans like the camping sure. thing sort of thing. Yeah. So he invested a thousand pounds in electron utilization temporarily, sort of to get it through a rough patch. Okay. But he eventually learned that it's not a rough patch. Electron utilization is <laughs> not going to bounce back. No. <laughs> so he's got. A, I've got a few quotes here from Stanley. More Best. of a farce. Yeah. Like he. He kind of got. I don't know if. He kind of got duped into spending a thousand. Okay. Or maybe not. Uh, no. So that's misrepresenting. <laughs> so there's a lot. I had to trim a lot from the book to kind of make it fit in this podcast. Right. So I've. I know more about Crowhurst that maybe I'm communicating here. But the thing is, is that at no point so far. Would he have been like duping anyone uh-huh. in his mind? He eagerly, he earnestly thought like, I need a thousand pounds to stay afloat for now. And then I'll be good. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It's not just like, I need a thousand pounds. I need money wherever I can get it. Yeah. And this guy offers a thousand. Like everything that he does is in earnest. Yeah. He's right? going to use that money to put into the company to yeah. make it do what he needs it to do. Exactly. And that's, that's something that's worth keeping in mind about Donald Crowhurst. The man is that none of... What he, he's done so far, none of it is really, he's not trying to be subversive yeah. or fool anybody into anything. Yeah, he's not yeah. a schemer. It's not in his character. Mm. Yet. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So a few quotes about Stanley Best. Right. I always considered Donald Crowhurst an absolutely brilliant innovator, but as a businessman, as someone who had to know how the world went, he was hopeless. Mm. He was so much on the move all the time, he never appreciated what was really happening. He seemed to have this capacity to convince himself that everything was going to be wonderful and hopeless situations were only temporary setbacks. (laughs) This enthusiasm, I admit, was infectious. But as I now realize, it was the product of that kind of over-imaginative mind that was dreaming reality into the state it wanted to be. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm going to shift gears a little bit here (laughs) to talk about Francis Chichester. Okay. So Francis Chichester was a World War II veteran Mm. in the Royal Air Force. Uh, He was a cartographer because... At the time, his age and eyesight didn't let him actually fly planes. Mm. He was diagnosed with terminal cancer in 1958, but it may have, might have been a misdiagnosis because he actually got better. Oh. So, good job. Some controversy there. His <laughs> wife put him on a vegetarian diet and claims that's what did it, but nope. I think science has a few things to say about it. Yeah. That. Nope. So. <laughs> <laughs> After the war, he launched himself into yachting, seriously. Mm. In 1960, he entered and won the first transatlantic single handed yacht race All in right. a ship called the Gypsy Moth 3. All right. In 1966, he launched the Gypsy Moth 4 from Plymouth, England. And 226 days later of sailing, 
He returned on the 28th of May, 1967, as the first man to ever single-handedly sail around the world using the 19th century clipper route. Wow. Yeah. With only one stop in Australia. Jeez. Mini sidebar about what that means, the clipper route. So it was a shipping route that ran west to east from England and around the world with several stops. And it was used to maximize use of the trade winds. Uh -huh. We'll post a picture of what it actually looks like. But okay. basically it goes down from England around the bottom of the world, essentially, like past the southern tip of Africa, over to Australia, like, uh, okay. through the Pacific, and then through Cape Horn under South America, and then back up to England. Oh, wow. So that's a clipper route. Jeez. So he sailed all of that and only stopped in Australia. So He's Southern Hemisphere exclusive, yeah. pretty much. Yeah, exactly. All right. And also, like, uh, the other thing about this route is that it, it maximizes use of the trade winds, but it also maximizes danger because a lot of the ships were lost over the years, especially in the southern tips of... Yeah. Yeah. Southern I, I tips think of Africa. you're pretty close to Antarctic. Then. You are, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, but Cape Horn is no joke. Okay. Everyone's kind of terrified of sailing through Cape Horn. Cape Horn. So Chichester was knighted in July of 1967, following a circumnavigation. Sir Chichester. Sir Francis Chichester. Mm. Chichester's sponsor for his solo circumnavigation was the Sunday Times, a British newspaper. Sure. So the Sunday Times thinks, sailing single-handedly around the globe with one stop is cool, but you know what's better? <laughs> Doing it with no stops. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> well, they made a ton of money when he did it. Uh, so, they just get that stop out of there. Exactly. They made, well, they won't impress so, us. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. I guess that's okay. <laughs> yeah. You spent a year sailing around the yeah. world and you stopped once. Sorry, I didn't want to die. <laughs> You well, that's, that makes me a wussy. That's the thing then. too. Like he stopped because his ship was like shaking apart and he had to refit in Australia. <laughs> well, right? Fair enough. Yeah. It was, it was like, I think, I, think it, I think it was a planned stop, but he planned it because he knew <laughs> that his ship would be the almost a What are you stopping here, you pussy? <laughs> Sail around the world. No stops. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, the Sunday Times saw that they made a lot of money off their coverage of his trip. No. And they were basically like, let's get some more of that. Yeah. yeah. So... They basically wanted to cash in on circumnavigation fever. And they also <laughs> didn't want to potentially sponsor a losing contestant. That so, was the precursor to Beatlemania. I think it's yeah, circumnavigation mania. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Beatles were like, whoa, people go crazy about this. They'll go crazy <laughs> yeah. about anything. Here's Hey Jude. <laughs> that came later. Anyway. Um, so on the 17th of March, 1968, the Sunday Times announced their Golden Globe race which would be a prize for the first solo circumnavigation without stopping, and also the fastest solo circumnavigation. Hmm. So the fastest solo circumnavigation. Be fastest. So the first person to Doing do it, it is and not then good the fastest enough. person to yeah. do it. Yeah, do it, not good enough. Be two separate, fastest. Two separate things, though. <gasps> you got a trophy for being the first, and you got 5,000 pounds for being the fastest. <laughs> Chichester just bowed out at that point. You know what? Yeah. I did it. <laughs> well, and I was the first... You guys have your So fun. he didn't actually go out on this one, though. Good. So he, he doesn't have to. But he was one of the judges. So we haven't yeah. heard the last from Chichester. <laughs> so there's some anecdotal evidence from conversations that Crowhurst was considering taking a, his sailing hobby onto the global scale. Okay. So he was enamored by Chichester's voyage when he was actually, when he was doing it. Uh -huh. uh, and he had talked with friends about other various harrowing sea voyages that he might do himself, including... He toyed with the idea of a solo raft voyage from the Canary Islands on a diet of raw fish and plankton. <laughs> this is all from conversations, so a lot of people trying to cash in on... Right. Uh, oh, you know. I met that guy. He yeah. was crazy. Yeah, he was talking about going on a raft. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the popularity of Chichester, not to mention his financial success, drew Crowhurst to the Golden Globe competition. Mm. Don't forget his failing electronics business, because, I mean, the 5,000 pounds would go a long way, not to mention all the coverage that he could get by course, doing this. Of course, And also remember his tendency to bury failures in new manic pursuits. Yeah. And I got to think, whenever someone has a hobby and they want to take it, yeah, like they see, well, a guy sail around the world, like, oh, I could do that. Yeah. Like, oh, jeez. Mm -hmm. No, 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 no. Like you, maybe, you, maybe like a human could physically do that, and well, they did yeah, it. Yeah, someone but... who works their whole life at it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what Chichester's sailing you know routine was right but i'm assuming it's more than just weekends yeah well i mean he's a world <laughs> war ii veteran and he had already bagged a prize in the past for the i think it was the transatlantic sailing okay so he was not inexperienced and right. we'll talk about some of the people that more took, of a hobbyist yeah we'll, we'll and we'll talk about um the cv of some of the other people that <laughs> took part in the race a little bit later okay but anyway let's <laughs> see how uh yeah 
So Crowhurst began his campaign by lobbying the town clerk of Greenwich to use Gypsy Moth 4, the ship oh, that Chichester yeah. used. The plan for the Gypsy Moth 4 was basically to embalm it in concrete as a shrine to Chichester's voyage. Hmm. And Crowhurst was like, no, don't do that. I'm just going to sail it again. This is the ship that was falling apart? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Take uh, so he started like an aggressive campaign, calls and letters and everything. <laughs> he sent a letter to the town clerk who was basically in charge of making this shrine to the voyage. Yeah. And I've got a quote from the letter. Firstly, let me say that I know myself to be competent to undertake this voyage in a seaman-like manner. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but basically like, don't worry, I got this. Mm -hmm. Then he follows it up with, I believe there is not a single hazard attendant upon my proposal that I have not considered, whether it may lie in the yacht, in the elements and the sea or in myself. So I've thought of everything. That's assuring. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's like, if someone ever tells you that, and then you know they're full of shit. Yeah. I've I'm thought of everything. I'm sure it'll be fine. I got this. Uh, yeah, yeah. You don't <laughs> you got this. Don't. If you ever want to know if somebody has something or they don't have it, if they tell you they have it, they don't have Pretty it. Pretty much. <laughs> People and, who got this don't have to say that. Yeah, yeah. So the town clerk is like, sorry, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> so they, they pass hard on his proposition. Nice. And you might be wondering at this point, how someone as amateurish as Crowhurst could even qualify for the Golden Globe competition. And that's because there was no vetting process. Okay. So basically you had the judge panel chaired by Chichester and their job was to ensure that the voyages were completed properly, like mm -hmm. checking logbooks and stuff mm -hmm. without stopping at a port or getting any kind of assistance uh -huh. and dissuading rash competitors. But I guess they didn't manage to dissuade Crowhurst because they didn't have any authority to say, no, you're not going. They can just be like, you know, this is going to be really hard. And uh -huh. competitors can be like, Cool. I thought of everything. Yep, I've thought of everything. <laughs> I'm the right I'm the right man for the voyage. Good, so he <laughs> bullshitted his way into it. Basically. Cool. After lobbying the Greenwich Town clerk, <clears throat> Lord Dulverton, the legal owner of Gypsy Moth 4, and the Cuddy Sark Society responsible for putting Gypsy Moth 4 on display and failing. Hmm. So Crowhurst failed to convince any of those people to give him Gypsy Moth 4. Uh -huh. He looked towards building his own ship. Which in theory is the best because like we said, and Chichester himself admitted that Gypsy Moth 4 was garbage. <laughs> In practice, didn't really go super well. And we'll get into that the building right of the now. ship? The building of the ship. Okay. So let's build a ship. So Donald Crowhurst, ever cocksure about his choices, no matter what he chooses, that's the way to go. He was adamant that his ship should be a trimaran. Okay. Mini sidebar about trimaran. That's your <laughs> I can see the question like, huh? bubbling to the surface. <laughs> yeah. So trimaran is an amalgamation of tri, three, yeah. and catamaran itself from the Tamil words katu to tie and moran, wood or tree. Mm. So traditional catamarans have two hulls and you've probably seen those where it's like a canoe and then it has like a little thing out on the side, a float out on yeah, the side yeah, yeah. for stability and yeah. speed a little bit. Right. The benefit of a catamaran or trimaran over a single hull ship is that they float higher in the water because their mass is displaced over multiple hulls. Okay. And it allows them to skim across the top of the water and achieve generally higher speeds. Okay. Or, or if you're in a canoe, expend less energy to propel it forward. Because you're not like digging through the water like a single-hulled canoe. You're yeah. floating a little bit higher because you have the floats. So it's essentially a canoe with... Well, so traditionally... <laughs> Because you're saying Trim the word canoe and I'm thinking <laughs> ocean, so. Yeah, fair enough. No, so we're talking about a trimaran in the context of like a larger sailing ship. Okay, okay. okay. Um, but traditionally cat catamarans were canoes with floats. And sure. One, and a trimaran would have two floats. Okay. But scale that up to, like imagine a sailing ship mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with two extra hulls. All right, right, yep. right, right, right. And a sail? And, a, and sails. And sails. And, and uh, like an outboard motor when it needs it. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, okay. The other benefit of trimarans is that they're relatively difficult to capsize because they've got those two floats on either side, yeah. so they're not really tipping over. But if they do flip, flipping back over is virtually impossible. Right. And they can travel so quickly that if they hit a wave head on, they can flip back over front. Right. Just which is yeah. a terrifying prospect. Yeah. So many sailors consider trimarans dangerous unless the helm is constantly manned because there are many forms of autopilots for ships, mm -hmm. self-steering mechanisms, but... They're not advisable on trimarans because the vibrations are so high that they tend to damage them. And you, you, you generally need to man the posts yeah, okay. at all times. Sailing around the world. Hmm. Never not man in the post. <laughs> anyway, so Crowhurst's excitement for trimarans is extra shocking considering he'd never even set foot in one. Mm -hmm. So right now we're in mid-May. The first two competitors were days away from setting sail. Uh, Robin Knox Johnson, who we'll hear about again, was also in the final stages of preparation. 
and a fourth competitor from France was setting sail for England to begin the race. Okay. So like people are, by May, people are like, they're, they're good to go. They're prepared and they're getting started. Yeah. Crowhurst didn't have a boat or a sponsor. <laughs> He's the Woodstock 50 of this. He's the Woodstock 50. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's a good analogy. Uh, uh, the Sunday Times imposed a hard October 31st deadline for competitors to leave. Because scary. Well, yeah, but the the reason that they impose that is because they if they left any later, they would reach the Southern Ocean before the end of the Southern winter. All right. Or they still wouldn't be at Cape Horn under South America before the beginning of the next winter. Okay. And as bad as those regions are in the summer, they're even worse in the winter. Yeah. I've got a little, it's not quite a uh, sidebar because it's still on topic, but the area underneath, like the, these particularly choppy seas underneath uh, South America and Africa are known as the Roaring Forties. You might have heard of that term, but <laughs> basically they have strong westerly winds in the Southern Hemisphere uh-huh. between the 40th and 50th degree latitude. And then you also have the Furious Fifties, which, hmm. I mean, you figure it out, but basically Sounds between the 50 and 60, even worse. Even worse. So Cape Horn is particularly brutal. Okay. Because it's a, so it's a 600 mile gap between the tip of South America and Antarctica. Okay. And it's the meeting point of massive currents from both the Pacific and Atlantic oceans. So okay. they both kind of converge on Cape Horn. They're relatively shallow in Cape Horn. Uh-huh. And if you remember from our episode on tsunamis, that's how you get giant waves. Uh-huh. They, they build up speed when it's deep. And then as it gets shallow, the front waves slow down and the top waves crash over top. Okay. okay. So you basically have mini tsunamis constantly being generated off the tip of South America. There's, there, there's the water in the Pacific and the Atlantic different. What, are, what do you say, Atlantic? Yeah, because it's, it's where, like, if you think, if you picture South America, oh, it's you've just got, sort like, of, the tip, yeah, and sure. then you've got the Atlantic and the Pacific meeting right underneath South America. Right. And, and so is the water different colors to help you? Uh, probably not. <laughs> Discern where they meet. Because that'd be cool. No, I think you just, you're up to maps. If the map it, point, yeah. can we do that? We nah, should set that well, up. Now we... Yeah, I think if you go to Google Maps, you can just look at it. Just okay. Yep. Good thinking, though. No, that was good. That was good. Should be different colors. We're on the verge of a business there. Like a line. I think Google beat it. Beat us to it. (laughs) Anyway, and on top of that, you have the winds coming off the Andes, which is a mountain range in South America. So basically, Cape Horn is not a place you want to be when the weather is good, and you definitely don't want to be there when it's winter. Okay. So that's why they set October thirty (laughs) first. So to build a boat, you need money. Enter Stanley Best. Remember Stanley Best, the guy who threw a thousand bucks into electron utilization? Right, right, right. So Crowhurst wrote Best a letter talking about his planned voyage and extolling the virtues of trimarans. <laughs> Got any more money? Basically. <laughs> but it's a testament to Crowhurst's charm and belief in himself because he convinced Stanley Best to put up the money to build the trimaran. Wow. Yeah. Stanley, come on. But there was one critical caveat. In the contract that he signed with Stanley was a clause stating that if anything went wrong during the voyage, electron utilization, Crowhurst's company, would be on the hook for the cost of the boat. <laughs> so if you remember, he's already not in a great financial position, yeah. and now he's essentially signed a deal with the devil. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Where it's basically succeed or be crushed in financial... So failure is not an option. Uh, yeah, basically. <laughs> basically. We'll see it is, though. We'll see it is. So... And- Crowhurst found a shipbuilder willing to take on the task, and they got to work building the trimaran. Two days before then. Well, <laughs> not quite, but it's getting close. close. We're like, I think we're still in May, June, and so okay. we're looking forward to October 31st. Right. By his friend's account, Crowhurst was happy as a pig in shit at this mm-hmm. point. So he was tinkering with theoretical solutions to possible <laughs> disasters and designing electronic gadgets to help advert those disasters. Like, this is exactly what he wanted to be doing, right? Yeah. Just like problem solving. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. that's what he loved doing. It was basically his, his his hobby on overdrive. Right. For a voyage that Chichester himself called the Everest of the Seas, mm-hmm. something more than a hobbyist is required, though. Yeah. And if you want a refresher, listen to our Tragedy Tuesday about what happened on Everest in 1996. Yeah, that's another annoying uh, account yeah, of like annoying people. Annoying people <laughs> and, like, hobbyists maybe biting off more than they can chew. Yeah, just a bit. Yeah, so basically... Stay home. When you're talking about things like sailing around the world and climbing Mount Everest, don't take things as guidelines, right? <laughs> like, if you miss a milestone, stop. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so he was manic and focused. Like, they would, they'd, he'd have all these meetings with the shipbuilders and just was, like, super focused on the task at hand, just very clearly excited. And right. Just with his charm, infecting everyone else with his enthusiasm <laughs> and just making things happen. 
So the design was based heavily on electronics and a central computer. Uh-huh. One of Kroger's inventions was an inflatable airbag attached to the main mast that could be triggered by the ship's electronics in the event of capsizing. Okay. So if the ship tips over, it would inflate automatically and keep it from capsizing, and then it would just bounce back and right itself, which is actually pretty ingenious. Yeah. The shipbuilder promised to deliver Crowhurst's boat by the end of August, so he'd still have two months to prep and take off. Right. But it was kind of a significant overpromise considering that the shipbuilder was massively understaffed. Hmm. The reason that he kind of made this commitment is because he was drawn in by the same sense of challenge and potential publicity as Stanley Best, because he saw what happened to Chichester. Yeah. Chichester got all of his praise for doing the voyage on his own. Ugh. And so anyone, like you get somebody as charismatic as Crowhurst who actually believes that he has the skills to do this, <laughs> come to you and say, I got this, here's the ship that's going to do it, and you're going to be famous for building it. <sighs> Just bring drink, it on. Drinking the Kool-Aid. Yeah. Yeah. So Crowhurst planned to depart on August 31st, as soon as the boat was ready. Okay. While the builder got to work on the ship, Crowhurst got to work on planning his voyage. And after revising some initially ridiculous predictions for his own speed, <laughs> came to a still pretty ridiculous estimate of a 194-day voyage. If you remember, I think she just did it in like two, two, 225, Okay, okay. So shorter. Still, like, it's not like bonkers, but it's still, this is a best-case scenario. Yeah, estimate, yeah. Gives you a little glimpse into his frame of mind, though. Like, he's going into this assuming that everything's going to go super well. Uh-huh. Dangerously optimistic, yeah. let's say. Yeah, it's it's kind of that <laughs> phenomenon where the most dangerous state of your knowledge is when you just learn about something. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you could you could see Crowhurst being, like, he's a hobby, hobbyist sailor. Mm-hmm. And he gets to that point where he's confident enough to take his ship out and sail it around and then come back. Yeah. And then you're at that point where you think... I got this. Right? Yeah. See, sailing's not hard. Yeah. What, what, what's so hard about sailing? It's pointing a ship and wind. You steer it and you point right? it in the wind and, and let's sail around the world now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's almost how <laughs> someone who knows a little can be potentially way more dangerous than someone who knows nothing. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. Is, is a they good get that little it. shot of confidence yeah. and think they can yeah. do it all. Exactly. Yeah. So the process of building the ship was, to put it mildly, a complete mess. <laughs> So there were three key issues that came up. There were, we'll get into more, but there are three key ones. Okay. So ships like these have pumps that they use to empty bilge water that finds its way in through minor, minor leaks. Right. And that's, that's normal. Yeah. Since the design called for 10 different watertight compartments inside the trimaran, they couldn't really install permanent piping. So instead, there'd be a central pump and then a hose that could be moved to the different compartments that need to be emptied, if hmm. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. The shipbuilder would later claim that it wasn't their responsibility to provide the hose, as it wasn't in Crowhurst's contract. <laughs> Foreshadowing. Just because of all the electronics, basic Crowhurst... safety is not in the contract. Well, you know, <laughs> after the fact, a lot of people start scrutinizing contracts after yeah. things go wrong. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, that wasn't our responsibility, yeah, clearly, it because black and white. it's not in the contract. <laughs> but isn't it common sense? Ah, bah, 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 yeah, bah, I'm not... not here to common sense. Yeah. I'm here to do what this paper says. <laughs> exactly. Gotcha. Trying to like wash their hands. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. So because of all the electronics, Crowhurst wanted a robust generator to charge the batteries, which makes sense. Okay. Due to the, the design of the ship, though, the only spot left to put the generator was under the decking inside the open cockpit. Okay. So the hatch over the generator would need <clears throat> to be completely watertight to withstand constant assault of water. It would it would get from storms. Yeah. Just water coming in. And salt. So if you picture like there's no there's no watertight. Uh, compartment that he lives in. It's like an open compartment that he goes down into. It's covered. It's got a roof. Yeah. But still, water can come in. Yeah. yeah. And now they've installed the generator that's going to charge all of his batteries at the bottom of that compartment. <laughs> Similarly, Crowhurst wanted watertight compartments in the floats and the two things on either side. Okay. So the hatches to these compartments were made of wood bolted down over round pieces of rubber. But the builder didn't get the right kind of rubber, so these hatches didn't form perfect seals. Oh, okay. Which, perfect seals is kind of a big deal on a ship that you're going to sail around. Well, watertight. Yeah. yeah. So over the course of construction, there were constant modifications and delays requiring more and more money from Stanley mm-hmm. Best. So at one point, Stanley Best provided a second mortgage on the Crowhurst home, <laughs> which I'm assuming any any homeowner that's listening just cringed a little bit. <laughs> I know I did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so now at this point, ev- li- literally every penny that the Crowhursts had was invested in building this ship. Right. And like, don't forget- you get all your money back. All I have to do is- Sail around the world. Exactly. <laughs> and if I don't sail around the world, my contract with the guy who gave me all this money says that I now have to pay for all this yeah. myself. And with my company. Yeah, with my company. <laughs> and yeah, so this is great. My blood. 
So enter Rodney Hallworth. Right. He'll come up again. He's a reporter for the Daily Mail and the Daily Express, yeah. and he typically specialized in crime reporting. So he learned that Crowhurst didn't have a publicity agent and jumped at the chance. Hmm. He showed a genuine affection for Crowhurst and his enthusiasm. So he's another one of these people that are maybe coming from a ge genuine place, at All least right. initially. Right. Uh, even with his help, though, Crowhurst only got a handful of minor sponsors. So he's not getting like the outpouring of financial support that he was hoping for. Okay. So there's a lot of money going out, but not a lot coming in. No. It's a bunch of dildo companies, probably. <laughs> <laughs> what am I going to do with this for a year on a ship? <laughs> Um, so there was, however, one important property crying for a potentially major sponsor, and that's the name of the boat. Uh, so Crowhurst wanted to name his ship Electron 5 to publicize his company, Electron Utilization. Right. Turns out Hallworth was also the public relations officer for a town called Tinmouth. Mm. So he told Donald that if he put the town's name in the ship's name, mm. he would start a fundraising campaign at that town. Hey. So Crowhurst is like, what about Electron of Tinmouth? And Hallworth, knowing his PR and where his priorities lay, <laughs> he changed it to the Tinmouth Electron. Put the town name first. Yeah. Yeah. Hence the name of this episode. Higher billing. Tinmouth yeah. Electron. Yeah. All right. Meanwhile, even though they were working <clears throat> overtime, evenings and weekends, the shipbuilders missed their August 31st launch deadline. Nah. They also missed September 12th, the revised <laughs> deadline. So Crowhurst was now butting heads with the builders regularly and growing increasingly frustrated. Build my boat. Basically. Like, <laughs> I need to be sailing already. People have left. Like, yeah. how am I going to be the first one to do this if everyone's already sailing? Everyone's sitting on deck eating olives. Basically. And they're what? built boats. What? <laughs> Why olives? <laughs> it's just a luxurious, Fair enough. leisurely... I'll take it. I like it. I like it. <laughs> That's, the That's the new image that I have oh, of all of these other people. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So after one particularly heated exchange, he came home to Claire, who pleaded with him to abandon the whole project. <laughs> right? The voice of reason. Again, this I'm has come Claire, up over and over and over Ugh. in every disaster, almost every disaster we've talked about. If you go back through the episodes, it's always <laughs> Usually, the women being the voice of reason. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> so Crowhurst said after Claire basically told him to like, give it up. So he said, I suppose you're right, but the whole thing has become too important for me. I've got to go through with it, even if I have to build the boat myself on the way around. No, you don't. Let's talk about the maiden voyage of the Tinmouth Electric. Okay. Friday, September 23rd, 1968, Claire Crowhurst christened the Tinmouth Electron. <laughs> Almost. She swung the bottle and it hit the hull, but it didn't break. Which, in case you're not sure, that's a bad omen for ships. <laughs> if you go to christen it, you know why you see those like christening ceremonies and they swing it from like a hundred meters away uh, yeah. to make sure it breaks. <laughs> right, 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 right. So it didn't break, and that's not not great. But people reassured her. They're like, "Oh, don't worry, this happens all the time. It's it's fine. Oh, it, it, no. it, it don't happen all the time." So the boat wouldn't be fully rigged with sails until another few weeks. Mm -hmm. So on October second. Remember the October 31st deadline? Yeah. On October 2nd, the ship was ready and Crowhurst set sail from Brundle. And this was, uh, so he, he was sailing from Brundle where it was built mm -hmm. to Tinmouth where he would launch his voyage around the world. Okay. Because part of, from... part of the, part of naming it Tinmouth and getting this funding was that he would set sail from Tinmouth. Right. The trip should take three days. Okay. Immediately upon a part, departure, a tide swung the ship around and it hit the shore, punching a hole in the hull. Oh. So. <laughs> Come on. That's amazingly not the worst part of this maiden voyage. So over the next 13 days at sea, the considerable weaknesses of the boat became apparent. So it was good when sailing with the wind, but it was terrible into the wind. Okay. Uh, ships, again, I don't know the intricacies of sailing. I haven't sailed myself, but there are ways to deal with sailing into the wind and other ships deal with it better than mm. a trimaran and specifically the Tinmouth Electron. Uh -huh. So it would go off course like crazy. Uh, at one point, the wind was so bad and the ship was so bad at sailing into the wind that he spent four hours sailing and didn't move. He was basically treading, <laughs> like running on a treadmill for four hours. Oh. He finally used the outboard motor, but he nearly fell overboard installing it. <laughs> and one of the people, he was sailing with other people at this point, just okay. so that yeah, he would have help on that first leg of the voyage. And yeah. they were thinking about how terrifying the imagery of him, like almost falling over a ship while sailing around the world <laughs> is. And that'll come up again. And also, while installing that motor, he burnt his palm badly on the... Oh, no, actually, this was on the... He burnt his palm ba badly on the generator exhaust. Oh, okay. And later, his wife, Claire, would say that this was another bad omen because he basically peeled off the lifeline when his skin came off on his palm. You know how, like, that this line oh. on your palm is called a lifeline? <laughs> so You're... This, yeah. 
walking dead so, now. So again, mm-hmm. again, it doesn't matter, like, might not be superstitious, but so far we've got a christening that didn't go super well. Yeah. And you've burned off the lifeline on your palm. So if you are superstitious, <laughs> the world is screaming, don't go. Yeah. <laughs> as are all the just facts in front of you. Right. If you're a rational person, it's also screaming, don't go. Exactly. <laughs> but not Donald Crowhurst, because throughout the entire maiden voyage, he remains stubborn in his dogged pursuit of the journey. This guy's an asshole. He also mm. demonstrated a reluctance to communicate bad news. So at one point, he went days without reporting his position to the Coast Guard as arranged, likely out of embarrassment at his ridiculously slow pace. <laughs> so that's something else that's going to come up again, too. Uh, so during this fiasco, Peter Beard, uh, a friend of Crowhurst's who had come along for this voyage, mm. asked him what he would do if he had these kinds of problems during his circumnavigation. And Crowhurst said... Good question. Well, Crowhurst said, well... One could always shuttle around the South Atlantic for a few months. There are places out of the shipping lanes where no one would ever spot a boat like this. And then he kind of laughed it off as a joke. <laughs> Crowhurst even sketched out what this kind of circular course would look like sailing around between the Falkland Islands and Tristan da Cunha in the Southern Atlantic. But he basically laughed it off being like, yeah, I mean, you could do that, but nobody would. Meaning what? He'd sort of hide and then show up and say, I did it. Yeah. Sail around the world. Exactly. <laughs> But that's <laughs> pretty anyway. wrong. So he's kind of, yeah. That's but he kind of, he laughed it off. That's like, his first good idea, really. Well, yeah. It's kind of a desperate situation. So he's like, I could do this. Yeah. But, you know. <laughs> so anyway, his three-day maiden voyage had taken 13 days, and there were now just over two weeks until October 31st and his departure deadline. Stupid. Uh-huh. Mm. So, well, but the thing is, like, he has this, uh, so it's a quality that I find admiral if you're admirable if you're not blind to the circumstances around you because i think he has the right sort of enthusiasm that can get shit done yeah he's the kind of person where if his education had worked out Mm -hmm. electro like we might be using electron utilization smartphones now yeah right right, if he had the right education and positioned himself better because he's got that motivation that you see in like steve Jobs ceo kind of people at least at this point yeah right but you got to think those people who succeeded had a a, even a modicum of common sense yeah. like this guy is just nothing can stop him not even when it's yeah. it's doomed to fail well yeah exactly and that's yeah that is that yeah exactly but he has that like something yeah he's not I, just some schlub no totally and it's <laughs> and what, like reading that book there's so many times where i had to stop myself because i'd read something like this and i'd be like you idiot yeah but then i'd stop myself and think it's not not idiot he is a product of yeah, you know, trouble in the past. He's got this sure. crushing financial debt. He's got this thing inside him that <clears throat> motivates him to do it. Yeah, there's no, but it's I mean, just, nothing can stop him. He's got him, the which blinders to common sense. Kind like of said. amazing, but yeah. yeah, it's, you know, it can only take that so far. Yeah. So even after his maiden voyage, the Tinmouth Electron was nowhere near complete. So there's a laundry list of unfinished details. And basically all of Crowhurst's bold electronic inventions were unfinished. Mm. Crowhurst carried around an unorganized bundle of paper as a haphazard to-do list. You can just <laughs> picture him running around with like sheets of paper, yeah. like trying to flip through like, yeah. oh, I got to get butter too. Like, yeah. You know. yeah. Uh, so Crowhurst gave several interviews where he put on a confident facade. And maybe we'll link to some of these YouTube videos because it is. Oh, nice. It is. Yeah. So as soon as the camera stopped, his demeanor would drop, clearly overcome by the crushing stress of the situation. <laughs> so he would like put on a brave Stressing face. Me out hearing about be it. like Be like the cheery, uh, enthusiastic, charming Crowhurst. Yeah. And then the cameras would stop and he'd just go back to just sweating bullets. Sweating. And like, yeah. <laughs> Arguments about money also continued. So remember that Crowhurst's company, Electronization, would be on the hook for the ever-growing cost of the boat if the voyage failed. Crowhurst had put a second mortgage, also with Stanley Best, on his family's home. <laughs> and Crowhurst was continually increasing the size of this loan, right? So he's yeah, got right. the second mortgage and he's always going back to Best being like, can we make it a little bit bigger? Yeah, refinance, so refinance. it's just growing and growing. <sighs> at one point, Best says, if Donald had frankly told me at the moment that it was unsafe to go, I would have been angry, but I would, of course, not have insisted that he go. Right. <laughs> but he never hinted at any doubt. So I'm not I'm not necessarily looking to paint Stanley Best as a villain, but he was definitely an instrument in helping Crowhurst mount a massive amount of debt on his shoulders that yeah. he felt like there was no way out. Yeah. Right? So I know that you can't you can't necessarily fault someone like it's not someone else's responsibility necessarily, but you're also at no point was best like, hey, um maybe I'm not gonna give you any more money. Yeah, cut your losses. Doesn't go isn't really going super well. Yeah. It's not like best is Crowhurst's dad. 
but other people can see that this is not going to end well. Right, right. So the general impression was that Crowhurst was numbed into inefficiency. So like, have you ever, have you ever had so much to do that you don't know where to start? So you do nothing. Yes. So that's basically him. Like <laughs> imagine that feeling of like being paralyzed because you don't know where to start. And so you can't start. Yeah. It's uh yeah, it's a snowball effect. There's just so much good. to do it's too much. Yeah. Exactly. Like, where do I start? So apparently a lot of this, he would, uh, one thing that he would do over and over. So he was a specialist in electronics and radio communication. Uh -huh. So one thing he would do is go to these courses on radio communication and electronics just to sort of brush up on what he already knows. Yeah. And I could totally see that because there are times where, uh, like I remember being back in school and say, studying for a subject that I wasn't super interested in and didn't know that much about. Mm -hmm. I would just go over the stuff that I knew over and over and over. Yeah, and yeah. you get that hit of whatever serotonin or something <laughs> telling your brain like, oh yeah, you know this because you know this real well. You right, got this. Right, right, right. But that's a small piece of everything else that you yeah. have to do. <laughs> so... Whenever the idea of backing out was raised, Crowhurst would say, it's too late, I can't turn back now. So it's full-on resignation, too. Oh, doomed. At one point, I know, right? Yeah. You just, it, it, I completely agree with you. Reading this book and doing this research, I just get so stressed out thinking about it. I, 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 I love the idea of that. Yeah. Even though it, it does stress me out and yeah. it's, it's, it's sad in a way, but just. Yeah. You're, you're, you've gone too far. Yeah. You've passed the point of no return. Yeah. Like I've used that as a sort of a concept for writing songs and yeah. stuff. It's, yeah. it's, it can be a motivating factor for sure. Oh yeah. But it's, yeah. it's fascinating. Yeah. And then, I then like the that. idea of, you said before, like he would hold back bad news. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love that. Even though it, oh, it makes me sick yep. to think about it, but no, just no. like, if you knew what I knew. Yeah. I could ruin your life right now. Yeah. But for now, we're happy. Yeah. That is exactly. And that's why there's so many aspects of this story that appeal to me because for better or worse, I see aspects of myself and just be what like human nature, but of you can see aspects of yourself in Crowhurst at the various stages. Yeah. Like I've been uh, overcome with manic energy throughout. Like you've seen that happen. Right. I mean, you're on a podcast now because I was overcome <laughs> yeah. with manic energy right, about starting right. this podcast. Yeah. But I like to think that if I was in a situation where my family was facing financial ruin, <laughs> I might pull back a little bit. I like to think so. There's too. a difference between like the, the having the blinders and not. Yeah. Right? I always feel like it's just one step over the line between yep having the sense to do that yeah. or just plowing ahead and exactly. ruining lives. Yeah, yeah, to totally. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Yeah. So at one point, Claire noticed water dripping from one of the floats in the Tinmouth Electron as it bobbed up and down in the water. So mm. like whenever it would bob up, water would be flowing out. The watertight floats. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. So they're not so watertight. Not so watertight. But Crowhurst snaps at her <laughs> and like shrugs it off angrily, being like, ah, it's fine, <laughs> right? But again, like just about what we were just talking about, you can totally sympathize we've all been like building ikea furniture mm -hmm. and our wife comes in and is like shouldn't this screw go i know how to build i know what i'm doing <laughs> right like yes and then she leaves and you're like fucking shit right fuck that <laughs> now i have to start over <laughs> <laughs> that's what a normal person does yeah normal quote unquote well. but that's what we would do <laughs> crowhurst just is like boats do that don't worry about it yeah mm -hmm. just Stick to what you know. It's not <laughs> right. boats. I'm boats. Yeah, <laughs> boats. Some boats leak, okay? Yeah, okay. They're in the water. <laughs> so the BBC crew that had interviewed him earlier and was filming the preparations changed their focus. So they took one look at the absolute mess of supplies and components strewn about the dock and being loaded haphazardly onto the ship and realized that instead <laughs> of filming with the intention of covering a potential triumph, they're now documenting a potential tragedy. These pricks. Right? <laughs> like, hey, fellas. Yeah. <laughs> want to switch gears here. Right? And that's, exactly. But that but that was a conscious choice. And yeah. that, was, that was in the book. They, they basically looked at everything and okay. said to themselves, this isn't triumph, but this is still yeah. a story. But it's still <laughs> TV gold. Yep. Again, mm. nobody, none of them going up to Crowhurst and no. saying, hey, buddy, how hey, you doing? Hey, pal. Yeah. You, you, you sure you got this? Yeah. So... He was lying in bed with his wife the night before the departure. And he said to her, darling, I'm very disappointed in the boat. She's not right. I'm not prepared. If I leave with things in this hopeless state, will you go out of your mind with worry? And she says, if you give up now, will you be unhappy for the rest of your life? He didn't answer. And instead, he spent the entire night weeping. Oh. The night before that he's supposed to, <laughs> supposed to take off. On the toilet. Yeah. 
between Pro- bouts probably, of diarrhea. Probably, yeah. <laughs> so in retrospect, Claire blames herself for not reading Croher's signs. So she thinks that this was basically him tr- looking for an out. Like if she had said, yeah, I don't know if I can handle it, then he'd be like, oh, okay, well, if you can't handle yeah. it, then I'm going to I can't have you worrying. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just going to back so out. So it's off. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is not necessarily fair of her to blame herself like that. No, but, he was an insane person. But I've been in that, I'm assuming I'm not the only one, I've been in that situation too where like, I don't, I don't want to quit, but you're always like... Honey, if this is too much time, yeah, exactly. I understand. Tell me it's tell me I should stop. Yeah, basically. You tell me. Yeah. Tell me. Can you tell me? Mm-hmm. Just say stop. <laughs> <laughs> so, after all this, at 3 p.m. on Thursday, October 31st, 1968, mm-hmm. the Tinmouth Electron was towed out of the Tinmouth Harbor. So, leaving his wife, the woman whose side, if you remember, he promised he would never leave, and four children behind, Crowhurst set sail on an ill-supplied half-finished boat in his attempt to become the fastest man to single-handedly circumnavigate the globe and win the Golden Globe. (sighs) To be continued. (laughs) (laughs) See you next time, folks. (laughs) So, yeah, that's... Oh, that's a cliffhanger. That's gonna... It's gonna go real well. You should come back. So he does it, right? Totally. It's a happy end. Yeah, we're actually changing the name of the podcast. This is a triumph. This is is where we're going from now on. (laughs) Thank Um, God. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Too many bummers. Yeah. So rather than wait until the end of the story, I thought it'd be good to have music recommendations for both halves. Okay. So I thought that we could do music for this first half, and then we'll do music for the second half, because they both have strikingly different tones as well. Right. Okay. (laughs) So I don't know if you want to go first for this one, or I can go first. Uh, Well, I mean, I usually go first. Sure. Okay. Tell me what this made you listen to. Well, this was a different one because usually going in, I have at least an idea of of um, what the topic is going to be, mm. like, or a title yeah. or like a setting or something. This yeah. one, I, I had I had nothing. Like, right. this has been a complete surprise, right. uh, and a fascinating one mm-hmm. so far. Um, so from Peter, I got it's a bit a little bit different this week. Um, two musical recommendations right. to reflect the two parts of the yeah. story. Yeah. So the first part, um, I chose a track, and like you'd sort of given me some uh, keywords. Keywords. And, yeah, yeah. To, so the first one was, I think, just stress and yeah. a mess. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So I picked a song by one of my favorite groups, uh, the Melvins. Nice. Um, and it's called Antitoxidote. Okay. Uh, from their Eggnog EP. It okay. came out in 1992. Yeah. On boner records um and it's it's one of their typically heavy songs but it's and it's it's sort of a a thread that runs through the four songs in the ep but it just sounds to me like it's just cracked okay like it it sounds like from the minds of you know people who are not thinking properly so it's uh like the the lyrics are kind of nonsensical and it just it sounds like it's falling apart right okay so it's a very manic song that sounds that like at any moment it's just gonna train wreck okay and for that i love it nice so um yeah that's sort of i guess that works with the build-up of just that sounds exactly getting like just (laughs) crazier and crazier and coming apart at the seams yeah yeah so yeah that's my uh pick for part one sweet okay well that's uh awesome so i went with a band called indian handcrafts Yes. We saw them live once. We did. Uh, there are two pieces from Barrie, Ontario. Nice. Right near here. Yeah. So it's from the album Civil Disobedience for Losers in 2012, <laughs> uh, which was actually interesting that you chose the Melvins because <laughs> it was recorded with Tashi. Right. So he records the Melvins. Yeah, he, he's recorded some stuff for the Melvins. Mm-hmm. The song is Bruce Lee. Okay. I don't know if you know the track, but no. you're probably hearing it right now. Uh-huh. And I picked it because it's basically like a manic high energy track. <clears throat> But it's also changeable. Like, it shifts three or four times within the song. Mm. And it's all sort of optimism and go and bring it on. Yeah. It's also a bitchin' song. <laughs> but I thought that in terms of, like, it really encapsulates, I focus more on the manic side of just, like, the go, go, go yeah. aspect. So that's why this song sort of jumped out at me. Okay. So that's, you probably you probably heard a bunch of that right now. Yeah. All right, so that was that was part one of the Tinmouth Electron series. Hopefully mm. you found it super interesting enough to listen to part two. I did. Because there's even more that happens in part two. And oh, you, good Lord. You, the, whatever you're picturing right now about how this ends, you're not picturing the right ending. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, so, we can all agree be... that Crowhurst is an asshole. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, and that's is he though? Like, uh, there's, the, you know, I feel like there's a little bit of Crowhurst in all of us. You know what I mean? A little bit. And it, to a certain extent, I feel like we could all use a little bit of Crowhurst. I could use a little more Crowhurst. Right before the part where you leave your family to sail around the world on a ship that's almost. That's where I draw the Crowhurst line. That's the that's the Crowhurst line. I'm behind the Crowhurst line. (laughs) All right. So if you like what you hear, please check us out on iTunes and subscribe. If if you want to hear more, leave us a review. That would be super helpful. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at This Disaster Pod. Check out our website, www.thisdisasterpod.com. Don't forget about those postcards. We've got some other sweet merch coming up soon. So keep an eye on that. And uh, tune in next week for Tragedy Tuesday and then the week after for part two of Tin Myth Electron. Oh, pins and needles. And come check us out live. Yep. Ottawa Podcast Festival.com. Dot com. Yep. Live on Elgin. Yep. Saturday. Saturday. That's this Saturday. Saturday, August 24th. That's right. Yep. 3.30-ish we, we perform. That's right. Talk. That's going to be another two good ones. Yeah, so, you know. Yeah, one those. from Peter and one from me. That's yeah. the plan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's too many sods. Yeah. Both <laughs> both awesome. Yeah. Okay. See you next time. Bye bye.